Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Jonathan Lethem, is a man of many lives. For one, because of his return to New York as both setting and muse in novels such as Motherless Brooklyn, Fortress of Solitude, and Chronic City, he may be New York's closest thing to having a bard. But Lethem is known as well for his genre fiction, his hard-boiled detective and science fiction books, his revival of the Marvel comic Omega the Unknown, and for editing the Library of America's four-volume edition of Philip K. Dick's novels. Yet another side of Jonathan Lethem is that of essayist on music and culture with books about John Carpenter, the New York Mets, and the Talking Heads, with his remarkable Rolling Stone interview of Bob Dylan, and a profile of James Brown that the New York Times says stands as the best writing ever about the greatest musician of the post-World War II era. Given all of these accomplishments, it is no small thing that many call Lethem's latest novel, Dissident Gardens, his best. Spanning three generations and 80 years, from the Jewish communists of Queens in the 1930s to the folk revivalists of Greenwich Village in the 1960s to the modern-day Occupy movement, Dissident Gardens is both an intimate and epic portrayal of the American left, of American Jews in the 20th century, and of one family's quest for transformation and self-reinvention one generation to the next. Welcome to Between the Covers, Jonathan Lethem. Thanks for having me. What a great intro that was. So the novel opens with Rose Zimmer, a, a Jewish communist in Sunnyside Gardens, Queens, who's about to be expelled from her communist cell for sleeping with a black cop. And it seems like Rose Zimmer is the engine behind Dissident Gardens in many ways. So can, can you introduce our, sure, our listeners to absolutely. her? Absolutely. She's right. So she's of the generation that uh, became radicalized uh, concurrent with the high point of American communism. And also, you know, this is uh, during the uh, Great Depression. So um, there was this sort of sense that the workers had better do something, that, you know, that that something was needed and, and also that the even the center, you know, with uh, FDR, that the center of American political life was moving towards uh, the workers, right? Um, and she's uh, coming out of an immigrant Jewish family and at great cost, kind of intellectual and emotional cost has thrust aside the religious uh, beliefs of her, her parents and her, her, her sisters and she has embraced this secular – uh, materialist worldview, and she is a total firebrand, iconoclast, bully, you know, <laughs> emotional Stalinist, who uh, who who reorders the the world uh, of her family and her neighborhood and and anyone she ever meets according to her will. There's this great passage when you're describing her handling vinyl records with a lot of ritual and reverence that relates back to the ritual and reverence of the religious yeah. practices of her Jewish uh, ancestors. But that would be a comparison that she would be appalled yeah. that that she was making it. And it made <laughs> me think a lot about Jewish the Jewish left and that being something very Jewish in the Jewish left, paradoxically, this idea that it's they would they would rather not attribute any of their actions to their Jewishness. Yeah, that's great. Well, I became very interested in the way in, in this character that the hangover of her Jewish identity was creeping up on her in every possible way. And, you know, of course, the 20th century seemed to be designed as a kind of tricky rebuke to a, you know, uh, in, an internationalist, a Jewish, uh, formerly Jewish internationalist revolutionary who then sees the Hitler-Stalin pact uh, and then, you know, and then learns about the Holocaust. It's as though she's being thrust back into 
identifying with the the you know the victimized Jews of Europe right as she's thought that she could transcend all of that. It was interesting. It reminded me when I finished reading People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn. I emailed him. This was many years ago, and he responded. And I was like, I thought it was interesting that I didn't see a whole lot of Jews in the book. I saw some uh. Yiddish trade unions, but <laughs> yeah. I knew that a lot of Jews were involved in, say, the Freedom Riders movement, which you go into a little bit in, in Dissident Gardens. Yeah. And he responded saying, "But the Jews never organized themselves as Jews. That's it. And so right. they I'm might not going to bring but it up. They don't. They. That's not what they thought mattered. Exactly." Yeah. So another interesting thing about Dissident Gardens is the setting, which is almost a character in and of itself. Can can you talk about Sunnyside Gardens? Sure, and- yeah. I mean, it was a place that was very magical to me, the idea of it uh, growing up. And, and I, in a way, that thread, that, that curiosity that I had is really the point of origin for the whole book. My mother and grandmother had lived there, but only briefly. Uh, they, they, they'd sort of exiled themselves to the other side of the tracks in Queens. But it was... In this vision that I was offered, it was like a socialist utopian precinct that uh, somehow uh, they'd failed it or they, they couldn't navigate life there. But you know, I always thought how different things would be if they'd somehow stayed in Sunnyside Gardens. Well, of course, it's a place with a legacy of you know disappointment and compromise, but it still also has this weird beauty, this un- uncanny quality of being a very simpatico uh, – uh, you know, um, com- community-minded place to live, and and people remember the legacy of how you know neighbor bailed out neighbor when they couldn't afford their rent in this place, and some of that is almost also you know baked in. It's part of the architecture. These blocks were designed around these communal garden spaces, um, which you know during the '30s when people were starving, people would farm in in these backyards, and. Of course, then later these backyards were kind of balkanized. People would carve them into private, traditional private backyards and put up a little white fence and put a grill there or something. So it seemed like the the space of the gardens was like an allegory of the privatization of the commons, which is a you know a version of a political story about about what's happened to 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 the American commons, um, the American communal idea ideal. Um, that that's very moving to me, and, and it's interesting that all of these characters really see socialism and being American is very intertwined. It's not like today where it's an accusation of being an anti-American, <laughs> anti-American but yeah. it's actually very much one of of one thing. Yeah. Well, of course, I didn't invent this. There was a very specific slogan, you know, which I which I joke about in the in the in the book. By the time the characters hear it, they regard it as a kind of noxious cliche, a little bit too pat, but. You know, communism is 20th century Americanism. The idea that this uh, coming world revolution was actually an extension of the American experiment to begin with. It was a revival of an extension of what, what you know, the story that this, this place embodied. And I did come in a way to see my understanding of my characters became that, uh, you know, the United States paradoxically could never have been a great home for socialism per se or for, you know, Marxism, in a way because it was too much an experiment itself. It was a place of utopian experiments. Therefore, utopian experiments come here both to die <laughs> but also to be incorporated, to be absorbed, to have their spirit incorporated and, 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 and uh, you know, uh, you know they, become, they become part of the legacy of this place. And I think this is really true 
probably even, you know, uh, all over the spectrum. You know, I mean, if you look at the Tea Party, you know, uh, you're looking at another version of that American uh, fitful, you know, always at odds, always a dissident movement coming up that claims to have the real story, that claims to know what America is really for. It's a utopian visionary place to begin with. In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Between the Covers, and we're talking today with Jonathan Lethem about his latest novel, Dissident Gardens. There were t- a couple interesting choices that uh, around the, the Rose Zimmer section of the book that I really loved um, because they were surprising. When I think of Jews and their loyalty to a president, for instance, I always think of FDR. Yeah. And you've really foregrounded Lincoln. And I, I want to hear more about this connection for Rose between Lincoln and Marx something that might not be obvious on first glance. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about why you went that direction? Well, I mean, uh, you have a whopping big clue, right, in the the Lincoln Brigades being called the Lincoln Brigades, right? But I also, my personal version of the left and New York City and my family, it had so much to do with the Jewish uh, reverence for and fascination with the plight of the American Negro and the involvement in the civil rights movement. And so Lincoln, of course, is a fetish for that reason as well. And this was – in fact, this was very true of my grandmother. She was – she was she, she kind of wore her Lincoln love on her sleeve in a way that, I, you know, was exciting and puzzling to me as a kid. It always seemed almost like sexualized. So in, I went ahead and did that in the book, you know. Um, but but um, I also suppose that uh, I – I'm contending in this book in a way that's – you know, it's – Really important to me. It's sort of elusive, but with the whole problem of the um, the left's uh, you know fascination with the uh, the rural and the agrarian and the pastoral, you know, and one of Rose's weird instincts is she figures out, wait, if the left has a future, it's in the cities. Forget the farmers. The farmers don't want to be communists. <laughs> They're never going to do it. But you know, you know. So this cuts against you know, and that's why she finds the the um, the folk movement so specifically exasperating is because she sees it recapitulating this sentimental, you know, the Dust Bowl Okies and so forth. Um, she's like, oh God, can't we can't we stop with you know with the uh, you know fantasy about the the farmers um, or the you know the the country folk. But um, Lincoln, for her, is uh, a reverse example. She's like, well, you know, he's – yeah, sure, he comes from the country, but he was smart enough to like uh, come to – you know, he, he knew where the action was. He was – he became educated. He became – he was he, – he might, he might carry with him a kind of a – the DNA of the backwoods, but he was he, – he wanted to – he wanted to be uh, – he was an intellectual. And then again, there is this um, citation – it's a great citation in uh, in in one of his speeches where he talks about uh, the the essentially the evils of capital. <laughs> I even wrote it down yeah, here. It's, it's a real thing. I mean, yeah, I, no, you know, so I'll just say yeah. it because it's fascinating. And, and, and yeah. you, you stated that it was it actually he wrote it you know prior to Marx. So it sounds like it's right out of the it Communist does, Manifesto. Yeah. And it says uh, labor is prior to and independent of capital. Capital could never exist if labor had not existed first. Labor is superior to capital and deserves higher consideration. We never hear that quoted now. No, no. And there he is, the founder of the Republican Party. Um, you know, I mean, obviously, we could. It's, you can't stop enumerating the ways that American, the American center has moved away from any notion of these, you know, these kind of – I mean, you know, 
I one of the reasons that Occupy mattered so much to me is was a very paradoxical set of occurrences that can make you feel very mixed up. But it did something so definite and so absolute at the very start. And I think people overlook this. It reintroduced a vocabulary where capitalism was a thing you could be against. It gave capitalism back its name, right? Suddenly there was some such a thing as an anti-capitalist sentiment. And, you know, when I look at I often think of these things because I'm a word guy. I look at them in terms of words and somehow it be, words become outmoded or embarrassed or they only exist in history books. But, you know, trust busting. There used to be like a, po- a popular common sentiment that trusts needed to be busted in in American life, right? And now we hear that and it just sounds antique. It's like something that once happened. But what if we just actually called the trusts um, um, that that float into our lives right now – Obviously, all sorts of corporations and you know networks that that just dominate vast regions of some industry or some part of our uh, c- civic discourse. They're trusts, right? So, what if there was a trust busting populism alive again? You know, uh, this idea of names and words. You know, so the fact that that Lincoln could use these terms like capital. I mean, it. it you know, if you saw a, a, a elected official now. Um, whether Democrat or Republican, even use the word capital, it would be like a red flag. You know, oh, maybe they were the Manchurian candidate. Maybe they were a commie who'd been brainwashed. But for Lincoln, it was a term of discourse. Hmm. Well, it's interesting. I think one way you could look at your last book, Chronic City, and and this one, Dissident Gardens, as, as mirrors of each other in the sense that Chronic City is really about going on with your life and sort of denial of all the horrible things happening at the margins. And in this book, every character is really motivated by the larger questions and, uh, and, and how they're implicated in those larger questions, which you think of with uh, the return of the Occupy movement. And it makes me think that it's a really, it was a really interesting and good choice that you didn't focus on McCarthyism as the way an external thing that caused the, the downfall of communism in America, but you talked, you really focused on Khrushchev's speech which would cause sort of an internal principled uh, existential yeah. dilemma for, for the communists when they learn about the purges of Stalin. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean on, a, on a technical level, I wanted to do – I was tiptoeing very carefully up to the problem of the historical novel, which is, you know, not an easy one. And I wanted to do, you know, uh, I wanted to do American communism without any, any – McCarthy hearings, you know, I wanted to do the 60s without any, I didn't, there's no assassinations, you know, and uh, I, 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 I don't glance at all these kind of, you know, the fear would be to end up with a kind of um, Forrest Gump <laughs> history, right? So I wanted to do the other experiences that people were having, the, the, the intimate relationships, but as you say, to these gigantic questions. Um, what I also want to say is how grateful I am to hear you link Chronic City to this one because for me that book was so political although it was its subject was the denial the amnesia the sublimation of historical reality in the pressures of late capitalism you know how powerful that engine of of uh, amnesia can be well let's have you read a little bit of the prose from Dissident Gardens so people can can hear what it sure, sounds like great so this is um this is from uh, pretty late in the book but it's kind of a introduction to a a character's viewpoint. You've met this character before but not really been inside his head before. And he's remembering being uh, a kid and growing up in his own version of a leftist coming of age, which was in, in the 70s in a, in a commune on the Lower East Side. 
Was the book about the bull the first book he remembered? If not, then maybe the first on whose glossy cardboard jacket the boy's fingerprints were the first fingerprints, the first whose pages he softened into use by himself. Perhaps there had been some soiled, floppy picture books in his room in the commune. Likely so. He'd never remember exactly. Other books encountered at Public School 19 or the library, all beaten to submission by innumerable children before him. Cats, bears, tugboats, steam shovels, sneeches. Anyhow, nothing making much impression. His mother read aloud to him from her battered, heritage wartime edition of Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass. But the book about the bull had traveled with him to boarding school, been clung to like a security blanket, a minor embarrassment worth enduring when others had moved on to boy detectives and boy scientists and comic books and even stashes of, stashes of Playboy, an embarrassment endurable because he was the youngest there at Pendle Acres Boarding School, even when he was no longer really the youngest. His parents, Tommy and Miriam, were historical materialists, maybe. Materialistic? No how. Before he understood the word, the boy had learned to despise property, a series of injunctions as near to commandments as ever were instilled in him. Thou shalt not covet the plastic junk. Thou shalt not request that which is advertised during Looney Tunes. Expect not the G.I. Joe, putrid icon of militarism. Demand not the sugared cereal. Thine blocks be wooden. Old stuff was better than new. Less was preferential to more. Group belongings superior to anything hoarded. The boy's world, his room, was not so much devoid of toys or books as it, w as it was a place toys or books drifted through. These items, handed down and likely to be handed down again, worn into timelessness, were by this loving use cleansed, even if they depicted commercial icons like Snoopy or Barbie, cleansed of their polluted nature as commodities. In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Between the Covers, and we're talking today with Jonathan Lethem about his latest novel, Dissident Gardens. So now that we've we've gone forward to the character of Miriam, who is I, I think the other real heart of Dissident Gardens, Rose's daughter, you we really get a, a meditation on the folk revival in Greenwich Village, and she really reminded me. Miriam really reminded me in a weird way as a reverse Charles Swan in uh, Swan's Way and Proust, in the sense that we have these insider outsider Jewish characters who. In, in Swan's way, he can go into the aristocratic salons, but he can never really belong. And, and similarly, in reverse, Miriam can, can go into the outer borough culture, um, the black culture, uh, the, the poorer culture, and uh, in a way in which other people aren't feeling as, as comfortable. Yeah. Is that parallel? Sound? That's very interesting. I, I mean, I, it's great. I mean, I think she is a character of um, – of uh, street wisdom and kind of um, a kind of intrepidude. She's a child of the city, and and uh, she also has the problem of you know she embodies the 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 double bind of being other people's muse in a way of enchanting, being enchanting in the world. You know, and I I joke about this issue in the book in different ways for different characters. You know. Uh, Cicero, who we haven't discussed, is kind of a black token. And he's a very brazen character and a very bold character, but he also knows that he's functioning in a way like a kind of a, you know, a magical Negro for, for folks. And and then at the end, that that uh, that girl in the Occupy camp is joked about as being a, a Marxist pixie dream girl. And, you know, I think Miriam is also one of these characters who has discovered how to 
represent a kind of a magical feeling of access and fluency to others, but that's costly. You become you become talismanic, and she's a talisman of yes of New York City's uh, secret secret nature of access to different classes and cultures, outer boroughs and Manhattan. She seems to hold the key uh, for others to to connecting, and and she has an innate. You know, people remark on it, an innate kind of uh, communal spiritual gift. She makes people feel like they're part of something. But, you know, but then of what? (laughs) Well, what's interesting about both with Cicero and Miriam and this issue of being a a talisman brings us back to the issue that you, you go into in the folk movement of authenticity, which also links back to Rose and her aversion to this sort of false agrarianism with communism, because we have all of these people from Chicago and New York who are acting like they were miners or they were hobos. Right. Absolutely. And there's there and also Miriam's partner, who's acting more Irish than he really is, essentially, in this Irish uh, band of brothers. And uh, I just really thought that section was was both very. Um, poignant and comical at the same time. And I, I saw this parallel with the Dylan figure in this section and Khrushchev in the first section. <laughs> and, and what I mean by that is is um, we have this transition for the communists, yeah. for Khrushchev and his speech. And for Dylan, it's this transition from the collective voice of the folk to this more open-ended contemporary music that is also more individualistic and poetic, of the, which represents right. the 60s, sort of in the way that Rose is part of the collective, and then when Khrushchev happens, it it breaks apart into something I love that connection because I never would have thought of it, and it seems so uh, right now that I'm going to claim it, of course, as my own uh, I whenever I do. talk about the book. Yes. I mean, there is this sense of, you know, I think I write again and again and again, and this is outside of politics, it's out of outside of any set of signifiers, although I often use some set of signifiers to embody it. I write about the temporary nature of our com- our experiences of belonging, communities. You know whether in, in you know, and I just stack up examples from various books. But whether it's you know a gang of boys who form on a street for a little while and feel like they're the the Dean Street boys, or it's a, a group of misfits who go to a, a science fiction convention and for three days in a, in a Radisson, they, they function as a kind of alternative cultural reality and then they all have to go back to their jobs where they're just the nerd who wears the Star Trek you know, pin on their lapel. Uh, or, or, it's, or it's a rock band. It's people coming together and forming this brief gestalt you know, voice that expresses something that none of them are equal to individually, but that these things are always – fragile. We pass through them, neighborhoods, families, movements, and we are struck by them. They seem to be a vision of a world that we want to stay inside, but it can't sustain. That's interesting. And I, and there's this, a really um, insightful section in the folk section around how Jews could be authentic in their inauthenticness in the music scene, maybe because of their history of dispossession. So we talk right. about how Absolutely. rambling Jack <laughs> Elliott and Dylan could really pull off this persona or multiple personas, maybe in the way Miriam's Irish husband failed at, or, or maybe do. Phil Oakes for right. that matter. Why isn't Phil Oakes Bob Dylan? Right. Why is he not mercurial in that way? Well, maybe... Maybe he he should have been should have been Jewish. That's great. I love that. And I think that you know I would go further and say also that you know 
in thinking about the part of the book that – I mean there's so many parts of this book. Uh, will will drive your listener crazy. But where uh, the the husband returns to Germany, he decides he's more German than Jewish even though he had to run away from the Holocaust, that the fluency with which uh, Jews could become politically uh, shapeshifters, Marxists, internationalists, uh, repatriated East Germans – has to do maybe with this, you know, I mean, it's also, it's the belief that encompasses skepticism, right? To be a Jew is not to believe in God, but to be troubled <laughs> by the question of whether or not you can believe in God. Yeah. And and I know a lot of reviewers have, or interviewers have asked you or noted that Dissident Gardens doesn't have any of the fantastical or genre elements of a lot of your, your previous books. But I felt like it would have been weird to have them because the book in and of itself is so fantastical in its realism. You know, it yeah. makes me think of, you know, The Counter Life by Philip Roth, this mm-hmm. idea that of self-reinvention and metamorphosis. You can ha- you have Jews going back to Israel. You have Jews going to East Germany. You have Jews trying to assimilate through communism. Yeah. And then you have Bob Dylan and his, <laughs> his million personas. All the transmutations. Well, it, I- seems like a, it seems like a metamorphic – book. Yeah, I love that description. And of course, I'm honored by the comparison to what I think is Roth's great, very much greatest book. I mean, above all, above all his other great ones. But I, I, um, you know, in this question of my, well, where's the fantastic element? I've always felt for me, what I'm interested in is the reality we all consent to the consensual, you know, rap on the table, it's there kind of stuff. And under the pressure of dream or fantasy or some kind of dist- field of distortion. So when I introduce a fantastic element into a story, it's not that different from the way, say, Tourette's functions as this distorting field in the reality of motherless Brooklyn, or in this case, ideology, utopianism, the power of the crazy dream that's alive for these characters of living in a world other than the one we're in is by far enough, as you say, a fantastic element because it just it distorts the reality we all understand that we live in so powerfully for them. One of the really fun things for me is there were so many facts in this book that I didn't believe. And then I went and looked them up and they were true. Like the amount of African-American support for Eisenhower, because you have a character who's a Republican black cop. And I'm like, really, were there all these African-Americans supporting Eisenhower? And in, well, including Jackie Robinson. Yeah. Yeah. And, And then, you had even a, a flirtation between Nixon and Martin Luther King in his first running for president. Yeah. And and then the the leading role the communists played in, in trying to integrate baseball, yeah. which it, was it, fascinating. History is so full of these extraordinary specifics that you could never account for or accept. And if you invented them, people would say you'd gone too far. I imagine this book took an enormous amount of research. Yeah, there was a lot of research. And it was sideways. I would just go – you know, I'd follow – my own obsessions into weird corners. And, you know, so for a while it seemed like, oh, the book is going to be half about baseball. This whole idea of the Continental League was going to become this giant thing. And I, I and then I, I shrank that back down and little traces remain. But, um, yeah, I learned so many things and only a very small number of them can even get into the book because a few facts are all that fiction can handle. <laughs> Did you know going in that this was going to be a very uh, female-centric book? I, I know that there's characters who are quite dimensional and powerful like Cicero in, in the book yeah. also. But it feels like Rose and Miriam are really carrying the day for I me think you're theater. right. It belongs most to Rose and Miriam and and then I would say third most to Cicero. But 
you know, I, there's a there's a place where this book connects really powerfully to the life of uh, my grandmother and my mother as I knew them, but also as I couldn't know them because they both were gone before I could interrogate or fill in the details. And I, so I had to make them up instead. And um, so that that was one of the f- most kind of baseline things driving this book emotionally as a project for me. But I also, you know, there's a, <laughs> if you know The Fortress of Solitude, which is for many people, rightly and understandably seen as, you know, my autobiographical book, one of the weird things in that book is, that, of course, the the emotional, uh, as a container for the the autobiographical emotion, it's it's very direct. But I actually changed a lot of the factual stuff around in ways that is became quite misleading. And the the boy and the the father live very much alone in this house in the book. And um, the facts of my childhood were almost the opposite. My house was super populated. It was a commune. There were lots of people around. My parents had boyfriends and girlfriends. I had siblings, all of whom have been somehow evaporated to, to isolate the boy and the father in that book. And when people asked me why I'd done that, or where it came from, since my life wasn't like that, I hadn't really thought about it, but I immediately realized, and this was only after finishing the book, that there was an answer. And the answer was that I was unconsciously thinking about my own mother's life alone in an apartment in Queens with my grandmother. And that this had meant something to me that had been transmitted almost somatically through my family experience, but I hadn't really grasped how important it was. That something about being, you know, a same sex, a mother and daughter, I transferred them into a, a father and son in, in the book, that that was actually the secret subject there. So I decided, okay, well, what if I went at that directly? And so that was a big part of the book. So that, that Miriam and, and Rose feel like they're what it all pivots around makes total sense to me. So in a way, the politics, the the bookends of politics are Chronic City and Dissident Gardens. And then around this other dynamic, it's uh, Fortress of Solitude and Dissident yeah. Gardens. Well, you could almost say this book is like my mother's Fortress of Solitude. It's the outer borough kid breaking out of the you know, the prov- provincial uh, world of, 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 you know, Queens in this case and finding out what's across that great bridge. And the title really evokes paradoxically and evocatively the sense of belonging and the sense of exile at the same time. Well, nice. I like that description too. With, you know, the Garden of Eden, obviously, yeah. and the sense of dissonance as well as dissidence. Yeah. Are, what are some of the influences that you would cite? Well, on the prose, you know, I mean, on the way I... I I made the sentences and the, the paragraphs go, I was connecting in a much more direct way to the great the great Jewish writers and I'm thinking of Malamud, Roth, Bellow, Henry Roth. Now these are things I've been reading for a long time, but in some way I opened myself to them and also let them I don't know, help I let them help me identify that some of these you know, more Yiddish-inflected rhythms were deep inside me, that I'd absorbed them as a child from my uncles and aunts, and that I I could click in to that register. So that was a big driver for the way this book is structured in terms of influence. But also, I was reading a lot of really great memoirs, accounts of people's lives, and Vivian Gornick uh, uh, was essential for, for this project. And and also, you know, uh, Philip Lopate and and um, Leonard Michael's book Sylvia and uh, Kafka was the Rage by Anatole Broyard. People who wrote about kind of being uh, tr- 
being a New Yorker, self-inventing in the 50s or 60s, trying to grab onto the uh, what in what might have been a fairly cloistered decade in the 50s, grab onto the opportunities to break out, become intellectual or bohemian in some way. All of this stuff felt like it belonged to these characters, and so I pulled as much as I could into my own voice. Can you tell our listeners uh, what you're working on now and how oh, it might be different than what you just uh, achieved? Yeah, I'm working on almost nothing. I'm, I'm uh, taking a, a, an unusual uh, amount of time off after this book in order to replenish and uh, and think about what's coming next. I've got a few books that I'm sort of thinking I could write and I'm just browsing in my mind among them. I'm sort of enjoying keeping them all in a kind of twilight s- s- space where I don't pick. You know, once I pick one, the others all, sh- all will die on the vine. <laughs> right now they're all sort of semi-alive to me and I'm just gazing at them and thinking, wow, you could be a book. Uh, but... Um, uh, what I'm doing to keep my hands busy, I spent the summer – well, I wrote a big review of that Thomas Pynchon novel and I wrote a liner note for a Bob Dylan uh, – compilation of uh, people covering Bob Dylan songs from the 80s. Um, that was my summer <laughs> – those oh, were my two summer projects. Um, but I've been away from fiction for a little while now. Well, it was great having you on Between the Covers and it was a deeply pleasurable read to read Dissident Gardens. Well, what a great talk. Thank you so much. We are talking today with Jonathan Lethem about his latest book, Dissident Gardens. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Damon, your host. If you enjoyed this episode of Between the Covers, there's a simple thing you can do to help spread the word. Please take a moment and go to Between the Covers in your iTunes podcast store. Leave us a starred rating. And also write us a customer review. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.